This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 278 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and I'm very, very excited to welcome this week Logan Gelbrick. Now, Logan began his athletic career as a professional baseball player, then transitioned out into the world of coaching. And as you will hear, he has a very unique philosophy and outlook on the kind of strength and conditioning, coaching, wellness arena versus some of the more traditional tracks. So a fascinating interview. Before we get to that interview, like I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, um, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback. Subscribe, obviously, so you get notified when the next episode comes out. And then leave a rating. The, the five-star ratings that you guys have been leaving really do bump us up. The visibility charts is the best way of describing it. So people looking for a podcast are more likely to find this one. And then a reminder as well, because this is a free library that you guys can use whenever you want, you are the key to me sharing this and growing this project. Every single one of these amazing men and women uh, have so much information that needs to be heard. And by you sharing on social media, email, using it in your training division, you are expanding that reach and getting these amazing stories and philosophies to the people that need to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Logan, <clears throat> Logan Gelbrick. Enjoy. So, Logan, I want to start by saying, well, firstly, thank you to Tyler for connecting us, and then thank you for taking the time, at pretty short notice as well, to jump on the podcast with me. Thank you for having me. That's, um, you know, quality connection is makes it uh, an easy one to do, you know, so I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. All right, first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in Venice Beach, California. So, um, basically, uh, West Los Angeles. 
beautiful. Now, I know normally if you ask someone were they were they born there, they say, no, I was born in you know Connecticut or wherever. You are actually an LA native, aren't you? That's right. Okay. People find that quite weird, but <laughs> you know that there are, there are babies born here every day, so I hear. Yes, yes. All right. So I'd love to hear about that. So you know, where exactly in LA were you born, and what was your family dynamic? What did your parents do, and how many siblings? Yep. So I was born in Santa Monica, California, and um, two incredible parents that kind of gave me the the cheat code starter kit to life, uh, and uh, one younger brother, Taylor. And so, um, yeah, we, we had an awesome upbringing. You know, I think as, as I sort of think about uh, parenting, you know, watching peers of mine with children and, and then also, you know, just to be quite frank, when you become an adult or whatever it is that I am uh, of a certain age, you, um, I think you really see how much people are either held back or, or propelled forward by their upbringing, you know, and uh, the more sort of interaction you have on a, on a, even a friendship level, but definitely like a, a working level, you know, coaching other people, you know, you're really facing an, not just another person, but their entire background, you know? And so I, I am quite grateful for my, my upbringing is pretty, pretty straightforward, you know, not a bunch of turbulence or, or trauma or, or really anything to complain about. Um, you know, a lot of my values, of course, come from from the parenting that I received. And, you know, it was a household that had, firstly, beautiful paradox. I mean, my mom is kind of this artistic, free spirit. Uh, she still is flying for United Airlines. This will be her 47th year. Wow. <laughs> doing that. I think she started just before her 20th birthday. And, um, you know, so so she, you know, both my parents are sort of like the, maybe the black sheep it's, is an aggressive term, but they're the, the one that, that moved away, so to speak. And so my mom from, from Texas and then my, my dad from Oregon and my dad is kind of like the blue collar, you know, lineage of loggers, hardworking kind of straightforward guy. Um, and, and it provided a cool environment. You know, I, uh, I felt free to explore and do whatever I, I, I wished growing up. Uh, I, I put a lot of eggs very early into a singular basket of, of um, the sport of baseball. But, um, you know, kind of just taking inventory of the peers around me, I, I find that I may have had the, the most hands-off, most supportive kind of non-strings-attached parenting style in that way, you know, and, and I was highly motivated to, to, to play professional baseball one day. And, and I felt zero of that sort of helicopter parent, weird pressure stuff. And, and, uh, and that was how the house ran. You know, if you, if you wanted, um, support, you had to do what you said you were going to do. And, and, uh, I made it really easy on my parents and didn't get in trouble and got good grades and tried really hard. So it was a, a dream of a childhood beautiful now you said your mom flew was she actually flying was she a pilot or was she in the uh the cockpit she's uh she's in the cabin yeah she's a flight attendant that's what uh, i meant cabin sorry <laughs> and uh, and she's 
Yeah, I've been doing that a long time. She flies international and, um, you know, so she's a bit of an explorer at heart. And uh, it, it had great perks earlier in my life, but um, the residual traveler is still there in me as I, you know, find myself in half a dozen countries each year. It's it's kind of cool to, to, to have that in my blood, maybe. Yeah, well, I talk about this a lot because I, I was lucky enough to travel. I and mean, when you grow up in England, you know, you tend to leave the island a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And that affects the way you see the world. Obviously, you know, it... it to smashes some of the stereotypes and the, you know, the the prejudices out there, and also to me educates you on some some things that other countries are doing really well that maybe you could you know your own country could use. So, what was the what did you see the kind of fruits of traveling so much in your youth as far as you know coming back to the states each time? Yeah, you know, inside of your language just now, whether it was conscious or subconscious, is really you know, some language that is at the heart of, of maybe my most meaningful work now, which is sort of development, specifically, you know, conscious development. And, and you use that word smashes, you know, we're talking about breaking frames. And I think, whereas I couldn't have known at such a young age that like, maybe that's a part of, of traveling. It is an intentional sort of effort now based on, you know, how we know development works. And so um, finding environments and sort of external information that challenge your very limited uh, view of the world uh, is an opportunity to grow it. And so, um, you know, I think what started as maybe just fun and novelty uh, has evolved into a more intentional effort to, you know, grow some awareness, you know, yeah, no, absolutely. Because I had the same thing, and you know, you you come back and and you look at things, and people say things in a certain way that they in you know the echo chamber that they've been grown up in. There's there's no no blame to it, but when you've been outside that chamber, you're like, actually, there's there's some things out there that are even better. But you know, we have to change the way we think, and that's actually one of the main reasons for the podcast is that I don't interview firefighters every single episode because there's so much you know a wealth of knowledge and and different attitudes and philosophies and and just ways of doing things if you leave the comfort zone of your little box yeah yeah it's critical you know there's um not to get like too deep too early maybe but you know i think for a long time i don't think i know for a long time the sort of general consensus with humanity was was almost like a universal sort of agreement that uh, newborns develop through these milestones and that continues through childhood and adolescence. But what's sort of newer for us is to consider that this sort of development uh, between the ears um, can and should maybe continue throughout life. And, and there was an assumption up until like the mid 1950s before, you know, what we now call positive psychology, that those milestone stages of development uh, were reserved for the earlier part of our, our lives. And, and that really echoes something that folks uh, I think are really hung up on today. Uh, 
not just in, you know, specifically the first responder and firefighter community, but across all industries is, you know, we can benefit greatly one from the assumption that we can develop indefinitely, but two by choosing and almost manually driving our own development. Because, you know, after adolescence, if you don't do it and then, you know, life doesn't you know, tragically do it for you, you know, with some sort of adversity, it's very possible to, to be 40, 50, 60, 70 years old and still be stuck in sort of an early, very kind of like primitive uh, stage of adult development, you know, and so getting out of your you know, silo, so to speak, um, or, you know, your chamber to use your words is, is something that, you know, not only, you know, maybe like we, we can do, it's something that I think is critical to, to us growing beyond, you know, the teenage years. Yeah. And even, even from the, the yeah, this other side, the very extreme end of death, I had a, uh, a doctor on who's a hospice doctor, Dr. B.J. Miller, and um, he's been on twice now, and he just wrote a book. And I asked him about, you know, what are the elements that he saw um, as far as fear of death in all these, you know, literally thousands of people that he's seen pass away. And he said it was regret was the only thing. Like when people realized it was too late to change anything. And I think that is another, you know, <laughs> um, motivator, if you like, to, to challenge yourself every day is if you have the understanding that if your time finally comes and you look back and you go, you know what, that was a good life. I'm, I'm content. I mean, it's easy for me to say that right now. I'm not dying, but um, that that can also take away some of the fear of whatever is next after we do, you know, move on. Um, yeah. versus imagining that you're on your deathbed and you just have nothing but regrets of all the things you didn't do because you were too scared. Yeah, and we're we're incredible compensators, aren't we? You know, I, I deal with, with uh, athletes in the physical sense, and that what I just said is true there. You know, the best athletes in the world in many cases are the best compensators. You know, um, maybe they're even extremely deficient physically in some way, but they you know, through their desire to win, kind of build a workaround and, and compensate and, and justify it, not really addressing or acknowledging a, a weakness and behavior change is, is the same way. You know, I'm hearing you speak about folks, you know, in hospice care at the sort of final stage of their life. And part of the confronting perspective, challenging reality of death is that maybe, uh, it, you realize the compensations that we've that we've made to avoid thinking about you know addressing the things that they later regret and and a lot of my my work now in terms of like leadership development is surrounding this same mechanism really which is that you know uh, we have great reasons believe it or not for not changing our behaviors even in the the areas of our lives where allegedly we would do anything to change those behaviors you know the virtually anyone who's listening to this podcast has uh, at least one incredibly glaring weakness about themselves uh, if they don't agree with me then they're likely uh, extremely um, 
lacking self-awareness or, you know, um, maybe even like uh, slightly psychopathic. But I think we all know that we have something, at least some major kind of weakness or area of development. And um, in talking about that, I usually before getting into the behavior change, like to let people off the hook a little bit and say, hey, the reason why uh, making this change has not happened and is extremely difficult in part is because we have great reasons to compensate for it and to not address it, you know, and that's just what came to mind when you're talking about this hospice care, you know, but it's only the sort of what we call disconfirming information that's challenging your assumption like the ultimate uh, death uh, that we sort of are forced to make a change where we've justified not doing so for so long. Yeah, and you, you hear all these near-death experiences that people have and then completely turn their life around because I think the reality is brought right to their face. But as you said, sometimes we're we're able to seek that path of least resistance um, and, you know, just Put it, put it in idle and you know you blink of an eye you look back 10 years and like what have you really done what have you changed how have you bettered yourself physically mentally and uh yeah that's a scary thought because you never get that time back yeah it is, it is a scary thought and it's maybe the most kind of ubiquitous justification i mean it's like what the whole recently wrote a book about this very topic you know it's like we've we've uh rationalized insanely fragile unfulfilling behavior many of us you know and you you throw away decades uh, of your life sort of justifying it as 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 reasonable you know and the irony is that you know uh, pursuing this this notion of, of perceived safety uh, is just ironically uh, an extremely dangerous pursuit because it is quite vulnerable uh, down the road. So it's, it's funny how the mind plays tricks on us in some ways, our, our justifications at least. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to explore you know, the book and the philosophies a lot more, but I just want to go back to your journey through baseball. So at five years old, were you already just smitten with the sport? Was it, was it an intrinsic why for you personally? Yeah, you know, uh, if I was going to try to like reverse engineer the, the, the ages, you know, at five I was playing baseball, definitely loved it. I don't think I had enough like conscious capacity to understand, you know, the details of what I wanted to be when I grew up. But, but definitely my first thoughts about that, like the first ages that I could conceive of what it would be like to be 30 years old or something. Um, it is and was my sole sort of goal. And uh, so definitely by ages like seven or eight, you know, and um, <laughs> whereas like the the strength and conditioning kind of movement coach in me cringes at how early I was um, specifying <laughs> my, my physical practice. Um, it was a sort of an all in effort. And, um, you know, the one thing that I think might have made me different than many peers, I guess, that also, you know, want to be a professional athlete or some other, I don't know, quote unquote, easy answer to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, was I do distinctly remember knowing, 
um, sort of what it would mean to, to say that, you know, and I think a lot of folks who have strong desires and a lot of wants, you know, they have a long Christmas list, uh, you know, those folks rarely know what it means to, to want the things that they want. And so I think, you know, I, that was a separator for me to, to at age seven or eight to say, I want to play professional baseball and also know that, uh, you know, I got to spend hours and hours extra, uh, alone training in the backyard kind of thing in order to have a chance to manifest that. Yeah. So what, what did that look like? So from obviously, you know, five, you were just introduced to the game, but as you started maturing and going through the years, what did that child's day look like versus an average child that wasn't going to ultimately chase that dream? Yeah, I, I used it as a framework to support kind of all of my decision making. You know, I, uh, you know, I think I, I wrapped up a little bit of my identity as kind of my character, so to speak, as to like, um, how I would go about my business and you know, at that age that looks like school and just friendships and, and sport, you know? And so I wanted to be great at all those things and I felt a strong duty towards that. And so, um, but I do want to mention that like, as I got closer and closer to, you know, the higher levels of, of baseball, it was a very specific, uh, thing to lean on, you know, like I just, I didn't do drugs growing up, for example, not because I, you know, think I'm like better than that or whatever. It's just, I was able to communicate to myself and anybody who had questions about that, that, that I, um, was on this like mission, you know, and it felt like a, a really clear message to rally behind it. So I went to school and dominated school as much as I could and, uh, came home you know, did my homework and then trained. If I had team practice, I would go to that. And then after practice, I would practice again. And I had like a, a setup in the backyard where I'd take, you know, a couple buckets worth, a couple, maybe at the most hundred extra swings a day. And, and there was a very kind of disciplined practice. You know, I, I knew that if I had free time, I knew where I could uh, fill that time, you know, and it was all pointed in this direction. Um, and as you get closer and you kind of get more feedback, uh, with the sport and where your strengths and weaknesses are and, and what it, capacities you need to earn, then it became a little bit easier to refine that. You know, um, I haven't spoken about this at, at great length really, but I'm sort of reflecting now that you know, my position was catcher. And so as soon as I kind of caught wind that there's a, a number that is sort of attached to your name as a catcher in the sort of scouting recruiting process, uh, that was more or less the most important statistic, at least defensively as a catcher, then I could almost like train for that. And that was the, the pop time, which is, um, it's a, it's a time in seconds from the moment that the pitch touches your glove until the ball touches the glove of whoever is covering second base. So like in a, a, a runner stealing scenario and 
sort of the gold standard is under two seconds. You know, I think the major league average is 1.95. And so I knew if I could put up numbers in a certain range, then I could kind of more or less guarantee my, my place in collegiate and professional baseball, you know? So I'm, I'm talking to you right now in my, my house in Venice that is coincidentally, um, it's like 500 feet from my high school baseball field. Um, it's at the end of the, the road here. And I remember the first day sort of testing my, my pop time. Cause I had this number that, that, you know, meant something. And I threw, um, uh, 1.88, you know, pop time. And it was like in that moment that I knew that I was going to play professional baseball. And it was having this sort of very specific targets to reach, I think it really refined my my preparation as like I got older in years. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you. I, I never went anywhere near that level, but when I did martial arts, there was a period where I was competing a lot. And it's funny you said about the drugs. I was fighting for my university and the same thing. My friends would come home after raving all night and I'd be like, why do they look so tired? <laughs> you know, and I'd be off, off to my practice for hours on end. Um, but I can relate to that breaking it down. Like I would spend hours, I put a piece of tape on a punch bag and, you know, drill kick after kick after kick. And I think that that's is obviously then for anyone looking at you from the outside just shows how, how determined you are because to take that kind of planning for that to, to enter your headspace that rather than watch whatever movie that's on cable that moment that you're going to go and, you know, work on that particular move and then, and then do the work it's going to take to shave a fraction of a second off that move, you know, is, is what you see over and over again that separates the good from the great. Yeah. It, it, I definitely felt grateful, especially later in my life that I had something to, devote my focus to, you know, um, because I've, I don't know a more important sort of element of life is than let's say having something to, to place your focus and attention to the, to guide your decision-making. And, and I was coincidentally, um, afforded something like that at a very young age, you know, whereas a lot of my peers, you know, they, they reach their 20 or 30th or 40th birthday and they still haven't found that thing. And so, uh, baseball and, and the pursuit of excellence inside of it has been the single greatest, you know, support structure for the transfer of those skills to, to, to life in general and entrepreneurship and wh whoever it is that I am today. Now with, like you said, having that specificity of that one sport, did you experience any overuse injuries through your, your career? You know, I was quite fortunate. Uh, I didn't have any surgeries or any major injuries. Um, you know, I did have like some kind of growing pains and, um, you know, issues towards the end of high school, my my shoulder, you know, is and definitely was injured at the end of my career, but I was too afraid to, you know, see somebody about that. I think any orthopedist would have been excited to to perform surgery on, on me. And so I, I just I kind of cheaped it out. But, you know, as I look back, it is a bit of a miracle because I, I was for much of my 
short career, I was, it was um, sort of um, unimpressive physical specimen. You know, I, I was sort of undertrained, and and in that way, there's many things I would do differently looking back. But um, yeah, I kind of made it out unscathed, other than the the shoulder issues. Right now, I know you talk about having some incredible coaches. You know, as you got into college and then professional, so. Looking back now, was was that also you think something that that helped with the injury prevention that you had some very very good minds on that coaching staff? Yeah, you know, I think I I have to attribute any success I had in my playing days to to skill. You know, luckily, uh, you know, professional baseball is a very skill oriented kind of expression. You know, it's not it's not the same as, let's say, football, where if you're physical enough and big enough and you can put up a 40 yard dash that is impressive enough that you get a contract, you really have to, to do the specific thing of, of baseball. And it's so specific that sort of athleticism and this kind of physical prowess fall to, you know, a second or third tier kind of quality. And so if you can catch and throw in a premium position like, like I had and, and do a couple things at the plate, you can kind of earn yourself a job. And so I was so fortunate coming up, but it's funny you asked that just the other day, I was randomly thinking of some of those names who helped me coming through. And it's a guy called stretch Suba who, uh, he retired probably 10 years ago, but he was with the Houston Astros as the bullpen coach for decades. And he taught me how to catch and, and the Waller brothers teaching me how to hit and just a, an insane sort of, I don't know, pedigree of coaches, Tommy Butler, sort of a, you know, the, the late Tommy Butler is a, was a, uh, just old school ball player from Mississippi who played old school and coached old school. He was a scout for the White Sox uh, when I came into his life and, and, uh, and then college baseball, oh my God, he just coach Rich Hill won more than a thousand games at the division, the, the division one level. And, and we did some pretty amazing things at, there and then you know all the assistants are, are, are hitting coach jay johnson's now the head coach at university of arizona they they lost the national championship final his his second year there and and our pitching coach uh, eric valenzuela is now the head coach at long beach state and these, these are just killers uh ruthless uh, killers of of the sport you know um mark viramontes is our catching coach and and that pedigree is just i don't know it's it's it set me up for, for life beyond baseball more than I can articulate, you know, in terms of culture and process, excellence. It's just insane. Beautiful. Well, you, you mentioned a moment in, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was the college games where you had that like ultimate flow state moment. So I'd love to kind of hear the story behind that. Oh yeah. I mean, it's a, it's sort of a, a capstone moment to my career. I mean, it, I, I couldn't have known it then, uh, but it was definitely the pinnacle of my career. I, I played several years after that. But, you know, the the scenario is I'm playing for the University of San Diego, and uh, we are a good program. Um, 
you know, top 25 division one program, uh, you know, as I came in as a recruit and, and by my junior year, when this moment takes place, we've sort of overachieved to levels that aren't really understandable. You know, we're, we're ranked uh, fourth in the country, uh, broke school records in just about every category, including wins. And, um, we are in uh, the, sort of the first round of the tournament, the, the regional, and we're the number one seed. Not only are we the number one seed, but for the first time ever, we're a national seed, which is sort of like preferential treatment in the bracket to the national championship. And um, it was just a special time. You know, we had the best pitching staff in the country, and and it was uh, it was a type of organizational culture and commitment to excellence that I think about every single day. And um, we were in the middle of getting upset at our own tournament. And so we're losing a, a five-run game in the ninth inning, and the scenario uh, plays out such that, you know, um, we're about to be eliminated. And we sort of pose this, this rally in the ninth inning, uh, you know, down five zero, get a couple guys on, you know, they made an error. Long story short, they scored, uh, we scored two runs, making it five to two. And, uh, I come up with runners on second and third and it's sort of that classic backyard wiffle ball moment, you know, where you're in sort of the, the playoffs or the world series or, or one of these scenarios in the ninth inning with a chance to do something special. And, um, yeah, it, you know, it's a true flow state moment, which is, um, you know, there are many characteristics that describe flow, but it's essentially like being in the zone. You know, time is usually altered. Your most challenging work uh, is met with your sort of best performances, and it feels completely effortless. Uh, that's sort of what this this felt like. And, you know, just to, to paint the picture a bit, you know, the game's on ESPN, our school was too small at the time. I mean, we built, you know, one of the best facilities in the country sort of after this. Uh, but, you know, we had to host our own tournament at San Diego State, you know, who wasn't even in the tournament. And so we're, we're sort of the home team uh, at a sellout crowd on TV. And uh, we're basically two outs away from going home. You know, and and uh, I'm sort of walking up to the plate in this scenario, and I think it helps to understand that high performance sport or high performance anything is a lot about mastering the moment. And so, the smallest increment of moments in baseball is the pitch. You know, so like an amateur would talk about like trying to win the game, or you know. Um, you know, even slightly a higher performing perspective would, would try to say, hey, we're going to try to win this inning, you know, but the, the best in the world try to win this pitch and then the pitch culminates and then you try to win the next pitch. And that's how that sport is played. And so I, I walked up to the plate sort of trying to master one moment. And uh, this means my approach as a hitter is such that I'm going to seek out, hunt, a certain pitch in a certain location 
to do something very specific with that pitch. And so in this scenario, I'm looking for a fastball, you know, that happened to be in the low 90 mile per hour range on the outside part of the plate. And I was going to try to hit it as far as humanly possible. And so uh, it, it's a game of execution at that point. And so I remember stepping into the, the box and it's so surreal because I can put myself there immediately. You know, I was a bit of a outwardly cocky player just for the sake of trying to maximize my, my upside. And uh, I remember smiling in the box and such a creepy thought came into my head. And the thought was that, you know, an outside observer would look at this situation as a quote unquote high pressure situation. But, you know, anyone in, again, a high performance context could tell you that all situations need to be sort of treated equal. You know, to, to make this a high pressure situation makes uh, a very difficult job more difficult. And so I remember before stepping in the box, smiling on national TV and thinking, wow, what an opportunity to be in this environment. And flow happens at the highest level at a certain intersection. And this is kind of giving me chills to say, because in that moment, it was this intersection. And the intersection is our peak level of preparation. So the more time you have to develop your skill and prepare for the moment, the better. The other uh, environment is uh, the peak challenge, right? So, so, so the, the greater you can extend those axes, the axis there on your skill and the challenge presented, the more opportunity for a richer, deeper flow. And so mathematically in that moment, I was the most prepared I've ever been in my life to hit a baseball you know, almost 20 years in the making kind of thing. All the swings in the backyard have added up to this moment. And then the challenge is sort of, you know, in a, you know, one interpretation, the biggest challenge so far, you know, the biggest crowd, the biggest, you know, TV audience, the, the, the kind of weightiest, uh, you know, consequences. And I remember sort of chuckling at that before I got in the box. And then the, the creepy thought was this, it was like, this is all going to be over in about 90 seconds. And I don't know the outcome, but it's all going to be over in about 90 seconds. And just sort of relinquishing control of that. Um, and so then it was back to mastering the moment, which anybody who does anything well knows that there's a routine there, sort of a checklist of sorts. And I stepped into the box the same way I step into the box millions of times before. And, uh, the focus becomes very singular. My eyes track out to the pitcher. I see his body kind of in a soft gaze and then I see his shoulder and then I see the window outside his shoulder and then I see the release point and I recognize in an instant the pitch and I take it because it's a ball and then we start the process all over again and that's sort of like this roller coaster of emotion up and down of like heightened focus and then stepping out reset etc and it's funny because the focus is so high that every time I'm stepping in to a new count, I'm, I'm still hunting one pitch in one location to do my job. And long story short, I worked the count to, uh, I think, 2-0. and oh. And at this point, I'm trying to do damage. You know, I'm an advantage hitter's count. I'm looking for this fastball away, and I repeat the same process that I had millions of times before. <laughs> Step in, 
Same routine, pick up the pitcher's body, see his shoulder, see the window up outside his shoulder, the release point. I recognize fastball. I recognize it's outside. I'm going to go on this pitch. And this is all in less than half a second. You know, he's throwing in the low 90s. And I got a little excited. I put a massive, aggressive swing on a pitch that was about four inches outside, and I swung through it, strike one. And it was kind of one of those, like, the whole stadium goes, ooh, kind of moments, right? So it's time to it's time to reset, step out, do the whole process over again, step in. One thing's on my mind, win this pitch. And I'm still in an advantage count. I'm hunting my pitch and my location. And I do the same routine, see his body, see his shoulder, see the release point, see the ball in that window and recognize, again, fastball outside, and as soon as it left his hand, I swear on my life, these are the thoughts that I had. Mind you, at that velocity, the pitch goes from his hand to the catcher's mitt in less than a third of a second. I thought, oh my God, it's a fastball away and it's in a better location. It's not as far outside. I'm basically getting a redemption pitch. I recognized that. I knew I was gonna go on this pitch I was grateful for that moment. I, I felt like I wanted to start to cry because of, of the gratitude while this pitch is in flight. These are all thoughts that I had from start to finish in a very complete manner inside of a third of a second. And I put a swing that was 20 years in the making on the pitch and uh, it was all in slow motion. I felt nothing. I backspun the ball 400 feet to right center field. And, uh, just before I touched first base, I was already in my turn was when the ball left the, the field. And then I heard the crowd again. And it's like, you turned up the volume and you turned up the speed of the, of the video back to normal. And I was just floating around the bases. By the time I got to second base, I, uh, looked into home plate and all oh, 30 of my teammates are emptying the dugout to meet me home plate and um yeah it, it was so surreal and um there's so many lessons in that that have nothing to do with sport but the magic of that moment is something that is only available at that level at that intersection you know you have to earn your way into that game you know you can't just pluck a lucky fan out of the crowd to do that that you couldn't even mimic it even if they did hit the home run, it would be like an accident that they weren't prepared for. The context of that moment is only possible by putting in the development of the skill and then earning the challenge that would put that skill to the test. And there, there's a lot of folks smarter than I that make the case that the pursuit of flow in that way is and can be sort of like the meaning of life. And maybe all of the lessons we need to learn are built inside of the pursuit of that. And uh, I am grateful every single day for, for that moment. Well, and it's crazy how you say that you felt gratitude, because I think that's, you know, one of the, the keys of happiness and the keys of being present is to be grateful that ev for everything you have. And to have that in a fraction of a second when you're about to swing at a baseball, I, I don't know, that, that there's some hidden message in there, definitely. Yeah, it, it seems insane. And the only thing more insane than that that I could kind of relate to is my my good friend uh, who's also featured in the book, uh, Tate Fletcher, who, who in a beautiful kind of 
roundabout story earned his way to fight in the UFC. He was one of the first uh, fighters. Uh, he was in the first episode of Ultimate Fighter, and he's a jujitsu champion. And and he got his start in stick fighting. This crazy gang of stick fighters in in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the, you know they would they would train this this brutal sport of of, of stick fighting and. And even like welcome challengers with with any weapon that they would like to bring, and there would be these brutal fights to submission. And as the the skill got better and better in this kind of this crew of of fighters, they eventually learned jujitsu because all these fights ended up on the ground. And this is like bare knuckle, like you know, there's <laughs> there are heavy consequences for engaging in these fights. And he and he found himself in one of these high level fights and he said it was so weird uh he's describing essentially his version of a flow state and he's like i'm in this fight that my opponent is trying to pulverize me but i'm i'm just so grateful for him and i'm grateful for this moment because like without him and his expertise in this moment we couldn't have this moment and i i would have to bring what i bring to this moment in order to have it and so in this, you know, I, I can't say it was life or death situation. I mean, you, you could find yourself um, injured in that way, but you know, in a highly um, vulnerable position like a uh, bare knuckle fight, uh, to to experience the same emotion that I felt uh, as this baseball is being hurled in my direction is kind of a an interesting emotion to feel. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. I I had a, a similar one in a taekwondo tournament but more importantly i had kind of like a longer drawn out one actually as as a paramedic so we had a sadly a very young man in his late 20s have a a brain bleed so he basically dropped dead there in front of his family um so we you know we responded but the the way that code went the cpr and all the all the the algorithms that we follow everyone worked together everyone that needed to was on that particular day had taken their training seriously had done these skills for for an amount of time and and like you say that stress element was there as well because there's no greater stress than a family walking in to a building to literally take their dog to a kennel before they go off and have probably one of the best vacations of their life to them now standing around crying and you're the one that's supposed to save that person so the the heightened stress level i think that a lot of us in the tactical world we have that so yeah. the only thing that we can work on is the skill side because we're not looking for the stress the stress is going to be there all the time in these life-saving interventions but if we do not have that skill instead of rising and, and getting to that flow state sadly a lot of times it's going to be the opposite if you haven't trained then lives are going to be lost instead of saved yeah the the notion that we you know rise to the level of the occasion is is quite a myth you know and and um and the example i just showed you is is you know uh, no different you know like that that pitch uh is one that i've seen thousands of times before you know and and the idea that uh, I'd be able to go up there and do something that I hadn't done before is a little bit unreasonable, you know. And so we're trying to to normalize the extraordinary, you know. And so when you put yourself in that position, it, it is a bit more ordinary, you know. 
that's where the, I mean, that's where that gratitude came from, right? It's like being able to, to have a chance to do something, uh, like that, 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 that's been trained for, you know? Yeah. Well, and the thing with us as well is after that tragic event, you also can, can have closure on that call in your mind, you know, that you trained for that moment, that you did everything you could for that person. And sadly, it wasn't their destiny to survive that particular medical emergency. But that, you know, mental health speaking, you can have closure. Now go through that same code again. And you know damn well that you hadn't put the hours in and put the training in and taken your job seriously. You're not going to be able to have closure because that little voice in your mind is going to, is going to be telling you, you could have done more, but you didn't. You chose to do, you know, X instead of train. A hundred percent. And that's, uh, you know, on a more macro level, that's what leaves me in good kind of standing with my relationship with the sport. You know, so many former players, uh, you know, they're in a bar somewhere kind of talking about the glory days, so to speak, just to stereotype that, you know, and, and, um, I know full well that I did everything that I could in my, my career to sort of see that to its kind of maximum expression, you know, but uh, that, that, that's the irony, right? Is many people uh, fall victim to the opposite, which is a fear of trying their best and failing is uh, a justification to, to sort of hedge their effort. And uh, what feels like protecting yourself from the feeling of true failure uh, sort of ironically bites you in the ass because now you have this this question mark, this kind of lack of closure that you're talking about uh, and you'll never be able to resolve what could have been, you know, unfortunately. And so really the macro performance across across disciplines comes down to sort of what the Stoics have known for thousands of years, which is, you know, there, there are some elements of life that are outside of our control and there are a few that are inside of our control. And based on those rules of uncertainty, uh, it seems as though we ought to devote our time to mastering the things that are inside of our control. And inside of that is freedom. Absolutely. Right. Well, I know that you went on to play for the San Diego Padres. Um, uh, what made you decide to to finally retire? And then, you know, what was the journey from there to um, coaching? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a very gracious way to, to uh, describe the, the story. I mean, essentially, I had two two short seasons in, in the Padres uh, organization and, and I was let go. I mean, the, what we say released, but that's essentially sport talk for being fired, you know, and that's not a, something that I'll put a strong fight up to. I, I think I, I deserve to get released at, at, at the end of the 2009 season, uh, just performance. You know, I, I, uh, I didn't put up a year that deserved coming back another year and, and that was okay. Um, I think, in that transition, I just had to decide whether or not signing another deal was, uh, you know, a mutual deal to be that club's next big league catcher. And I, and I thought that was not the case. And so I just, I didn't have a, a big desire just to 
I don't know, tell people I played professional baseball. I wanted to, to catch in the major leagues. And so that transition was, was not nearly as hard as I, I thought, you know, and then it became, um, about entrepreneurship. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, didn't necessarily know in what. Uh, and so by the time that sort of introspective, reflective time, um, was through the notion of building gyms brought me to, you know, came to the forefront of, of what I wanted to do entrepreneurially. And I knew that I had things to say about training. I knew that I could do a great job, uh, you know, conveying a message that needed to be heard in the general population. And so that led me to, to what is now Deuce Gym and the and the sort of uh, the other locations under that flag. Right now, I know that you're you know you're affiliated with CrossFit and you do CrossFit Strongman. I want to really delve into the Strongman in a moment because that's something that I'm a big fan of as well for training our audience, a tactical community. But wh- how did you first come across CrossFit itself? So uh, again, I was super fortunate. Uh, you know, it's it's not guaranteed that at, at even the highest division one level or even ironically in, in professional baseball that you'll have a, you know, uh, let's say high caliber strength and conditioning coach or element, you know, and, and I did, I was very fortunate. Um, we had a, a coach by the name of Shannon Turley. Uh, my early years at the University of San Diego, he later went on to lead Stanford uh, Performance. Um, and when he left with Jim Harbaugh to Stanford, uh, we had a, a new coach come in, Coach Stefan Roche, who is now at UCLA. And he was one of the early kind of flow masters for CrossFit, basically one of the the leaders of um, the level one and the level two seminars. And so he was our strength coach, you know, he and a guy called uh, Josh Everett, who's a legend in the CrossFit community. If your, your listeners uh, follow or have been following CrossFit for a long time, he's kind of an OG, you know, he and Roche were the first two sort of CrossFit people to, sort of inject themselves into NCAA strength and conditioning. So we were kind of on the, the edge of that, that thing. And, and it wasn't super marketed or like, um, methodology wasn't explained to us, nor did we really care. We we're just going to put in the work and try to win more baseball games. But, um, you know, in, in 2006, we're doing Cindy and, you know, Helen and, and essentially, uh, they're sneaking CrossFit into our, our training. And so it wasn't until after I was done with, with baseball that I kind of came back to coach Roche and said, Hey, you know, I'm going to move back to Los Angeles and had this like business plan for a gym and, and I want to, you know, help the general population kind of train like athletes, you know, who should I go kind of learn from? And I, I, on his request begged uh, a guy called Andy Petronic who uh, started one of the first CrossFit affiliates in the world, CrossFit Los Angeles. Uh, and I sort of pounded down his door and asked if I could clean the bathrooms, you know? And so, um, 
the CrossFit methodology as I understood it and as I could communicate it um, became, in my opinion, uh, an incredible resource for developing general physical preparedness in the general population. And so I was sort of really blessed to make those connections early on. Beautiful. Yeah, I got into it in 2007. So I had a friend who went to, I think it was CrossFit Harbor. It was in uh, Huntington Beach. And, um, and yeah, so again, first time I did it, you know, I was like, what the fuck did I just do? <laughs> that was awful. Let me get, let me do some more. Um, but then went on the main site for quite a few years on my own, getting laughed at by gym members back then that were wondering what the hell I was doing. Um, but so I've seen the kind of, you know, the, the roller coaster ride that gyms themselves and coaches that, that didn't have the opportunity to learn from, you know, Greg Glassman, all these, these founders. You know, of the things we've done well, the things we've done done poorly, you know, and then we've compensated again. But one of the areas that I came across really through Julian Pinot was um, the the strongman stuff. And obviously now, I mean, God, he goes into the nervous system, nutrition, and all these you know amazing things that he's now you know un, unwrapping, as it were. But just the strongman movements, the sleds, the the sandbags. I found a they were so pertinent to what we do. They mimic very, you know, very well carrying, you know, ladders and people and advancing hose lines. But the other thing that I I, I noticed, and I heard you talk about this with your um, athletes as well, was the average first responder that's been on a little bit, as you were um, pertaining to earlier, may have that fear, especially in our you know, ones that have been on past their orientation, past their probation, they don't want to look silly. But when you told them, all you got to do is pick that bag up and walk over to that cone and then come back to me, it took the fear away. I got so much more buy-in with the strong, strong man movements than I did with, you know, a kettlebell snatch or something that that's a lot more intimidating. So what was it about the strong man um, movements that, that kind of pulled you towards them? Yeah, this is uh, a great uh, source of passion for me, and I and I love speaking life in, into this thing because here's the dynamic that I sort of observe from a distance is that strongman the sort of movement practice has very specific connotations. You know, even uh, I would say. Um, in many ways, worse connotations than fitness itself, which already has its own struggles. You know, the barbell seems like um, there are, there are as many allergies as there are to the barbell as, as gluten and and peanuts and things like that because of the the connotation. People fear it. People uh, have many uh, emotional thoughts about it being dangerous, etc. And it's all, of course, ignorance. You know, and then now you have this thing, strongman, where you're talking about atlas stones and kegs and and sandbags, and it reminds people of, you know, maybe a Magnus for Magnuson carrying a refrigerator on a Saturday morning on ESPN2, you know, in the early 90s or something. And, and uh, of course, that has nothing to do with, with me or anybody else that I uh, train with. So uh, it's very easy to place strongman in, in the corner for the freaks, the bearded strong people who, um, you know, deadlift 700 pounds. And uh, this is a, this is a, a misunderstanding of what 
can be and what in your case is the beauty of, of the movement discipline. I found it uh, because it was a course offered by CrossFit and as a person who is biased towards short, heavy workouts, I thought that taking the course would be just a fun Saturday, quite frankly. And in taking the course, I left, um, you know, unable to, to forget what I now knew to be true. And as a coach, as a movement person, here's what became undeniable. If you understand anything about training, training is essentially um, a specific dosing of stimulus to the body, to the system, to drive change. And, and so and you, when you look at training from that perspective, then as a coach, you sort of look at all these options. Like what are the, the things I have available to me to drive a response in a human body? And strongman then, uh, you realize very quickly, doesn't have to be this obscure strength sport, but rather in many ways because of the implements and because of the sort of simplicity of the movement is in many ways the most potent direct line to intensity uh, that you can find in the gym in many cases. And, and the moment that skill impedes uh, one's ability to uh, find intensity, then it becomes just a little bit less useful in some ways to drive adaptation. You know, like I know how to ruin my day with, um, you know, uh, the barbell snatch, but my, my mom just isn't good enough at that to receive what would feel like training, you know, but, you know, like you said, having her pick up that sandbag and carry it to the cone and back is something that not only can she do, she can receive a stimulus that would drive change in her system. And so there's just a lot of beautiful elements of it where it does a great job of eliciting a response that looks like um, the, the development of, of strength and fitness. And not only that, the implements themselves do a great job of uh, providing feedback. You know, they, they improve movement uh, in ways that other elements don't. And that's largely because of the size of the, um, of the objects and the sort of like awkward nature. And so they, they reward um, understanding more directly. Whereas like mistakes that are made in gymnastics and weightlifting, for example, can go untested longer. And so as a coach, I find that nothing drives behavior change more than uh, failure. And so if um, shouldering an atlas stone requires full extension through the middle, uh, then, you know, if the atlas stone does not get to the shoulder, then the, the mover, him or herself, uh, is sort of given direct feedback to make some sort of change. Whereas many of the, these folks, you could take the same mover and have them clean a barbell and they can make three or four movement errors and still make the lift. And now I'm in a position as a coach where I need to convince them that what they did could be done better. And their, their ego may say, uh, 
I appreciate the feedback, but also I made that lift. <laughs> yeah, I have PR'd that shit. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's just a really uh, direct access point to intensity. And uh, in many ways, it's safer. And, um, and when you look at it from that perspective, it seems like the most relevant universal training tool, in my opinion, in the gym. Yeah. I had I had a big aha moment. One of uh, other firemen in town, a big, like, actually competitive strongman guy, and so he ran some actual strongman classes, like you know, if, as if you were training for competition. And there was a two hundred pound sandbag that I got, and I I was able to carry it around if I kind of muscled it up onto a box. But I got a two fifty at the gym, and uh, it was just one of those things where the moment I changed my mindset i was able to not only pick that up but carry it further than i ever had with the 200 and it's it's interesting to me that some of the sleds and sandbags you can get past that mental barrier again that kind of negative thinking like i can't do this and and realize that you can because with a with a sandbag the worst thing is going to happen is either going to sit on the floor laughing at you or at some point, if you are carrying, you're just going to drop it so there's there's you know removing that fear i i found that you were able to push past barriers and it really was a mental game whereas like you said the snatch there could be so many technical errors that could stop you from completing that movement but the sandbag it's really just you and that voice in your head now when you finally let go of it yeah and then they're all like the surface level reasons uh as well that that you know i'm not uh i'm not above them as uh maybe helpful justifications which is that it's generally inspiring you know, there's something that, that happens to uh, an athlete of any level, of any sort of, um, you know, uh, training age that, you know, yeah, getting in a bunch of work and then putting the kettlebell down on the ground may have some endorphins and feel kind of cool. But uh, when you drop an atlas stone, there's just a certain fun and there's a certain, like, a primal kind of feeling to it to where, uh, you know, not for nothing, if that gets you excited about training and it tricks you into working harder than you might otherwise uh, have, then that's a benefit we need to take into account as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that the recovery as well, like for a lot of those movements, you don't get sore the next day versus, you know, hundred war balls, you're probably going to feel it the next day. That's right. Totally. Right. Well, I want to transition into to the book. So you recently wrote the book Going Right. Um, what made you want to put those thoughts on paper? Were there were there some kind of aha moments leading up to that where you realized that there was an entire mindset um, philosophy that really wasn't being talked about? Yeah, it was a book I had to write, you know, and, and I think it all started uh, well before I, I began to formalize it in, in writing form it, in the form of an observation. You know, when I got out of baseball, I, I was in a, in a time in my life where I think on paper it should have been the scariest, most depressing, fearful time. You know, I, my, my lifelong sort of work and care for this sport was now over and I was like 24 years old or something like that. You know, and it's like that should have been horrible. And it wasn't, you know, like my favorite moment, but I was, I was so 
relaxed and confident and steady, I think, in the fact that I could create the sort of next chapter of my life. And, and what I know kind of now reflecting in reverse, uh, you know, and it's also kind of chronicled in, in the book, is that I I think subconsciously I knew that it was because I went through that process in my sport that I was set up for success in ways that couldn't really be sort of measured. I, I, I was set up to succeed in the next thing that I was going to do in ways that I was, I was already grateful for. I didn't even know what my next thing was going to be, but sort of looking around, I realized that most of my peers and most of the quote unquote adults in the real world, uh, not only had they not gone through a journey like that, they weren't willing to do it now. And I, I felt like I could compete in anything against anyone. And, uh, and that was a, a strong source of my, my confidence. And then there was the other side of it, which is that I thought it was a tragedy that most people that I observed were not only just completely shutting it down, like putting the, the car in park and cruising, not only were they doing that, it seemed like they were all spending a lot of time and energy sort of justifying it. You know, like uh, it was like a, a sort of in mass locking arms and this camaraderie around quitting and um, not being willing to to live the life that they wanted or that they would draw the best out of them. And so that was upsetting and, and a, a tragedy. And so I. This obviously stayed in the back of my mind uh, for years after, and I sort of formulated these little hypotheses, you know, that basically I, I really to this day, I don't believe anyone is born and lives their whole life without thinking about what the hell am I doing here? What, what am I doing? And is this what I should be doing? Am I really maximizing my time here? Am I finding my edge? Am I seeking my best self or, or am I uh, pretending that uh, laundry is that important or that, you know, I definitely have to live in this, this anonymous one bedroom apartment and work at this corporation that I didn't hear about uh, until last year and I really need these benefits and no, I think at some point we, we think about what, what it is that, you know, we want to do in our short time on this planet. And so, uh, it struck me that it wasn't going to be, uh, I wasn't going to make a dent in this faulty logic with a inspirational movie. You know, it wasn't, it's not that we're one pep rally away from, changing this behavior um, and no real appeal to emotion was going to change this because quite frankly, we all have, I believe this, this strong emotional propulsion mechanism towards greatness and towards our dreams and whatever it is that we want to do with our lives. But I observed that it was this rationale, this 
quote unquote logic that eventually got in the way. You know, one of my favorite quotes from the book is that, um, you know, essentially, um, motivation can mobilize us, but it rarely sustains us. You know, we've all been excited to, to get after it at some point or many points in our lives, but how many of us continue down that road? And it's, the reason is that everything that we really want and our best selves are uh, on a road that's always going to be longer than that motivation can last. You know, emotions are fleeting. And so I figured the only chance to make a dent in this logic was to, to put together a logical argument for pursuing your best self. And, and that's where the subtitle of the book comes from, a logical justification for pursuing your dreams. And so I basically had to reverse engineer why I knew what I knew to be true about my journey into baseball and, and what we now know, and it's sort of like chronicled in the, in the book is this, in my opinion, bulletproof framework where there's a utilitarian advantage to pursuing your call them your dreams and your, your peak expression is maybe a better way to say it. And, uh, and the way these sort of unique characteristics work is the same way that, um, like the Russian nesting dolls work, you know, it's from the first element that the second element is, um, encapsulated and so on and so forth. And the folks who go on these types of uh, going right is what I call them. Uh, decision-making pursuits is that they understand commitment on a level that cannot be uh, learned any other way. And uh, I, I know that I could not fake uh, or pretend to commit to something in the way that I committed to my baseball career. And it's from this commitment that we understand uh, the next characteristic, which is that folks who are going right uh, because of that commitment have a chance to build a large body of deep work. I've, I've looked for an example, and I still can't find one, of some sort of master of his or her craft that does not have a large body of deep work behind them. Now, here's the thing. Lots of people, lots of really unremarkable people, quite frankly, have a large body of work behind them. But what we know about excellence is that not all work is created equal. You know, a lot of people show up to uh, their job, so to speak, for years and years and years, but don't get any better at it. And this is where that deep work or um, deliberate practice, these are sort of academic level concepts that are supported by research that indicate that there are ways to practice better than others. And this is what basically folks who are deeply committed to excellence happen upon, you know, the best violinists, the best basketball players, the best, you know, um, uh, artists end up finding their way to practicing in a way that would qualify as deep work or deliberate practice because it is the best way to accomplish what it is that they're committed to. You know, Beethoven didn't read a book on deliberate practice. The book was written after Beethoven did it. 
you know, and I didn't read a book on deliberate practice, but I was following those principles in my backyard at age 12 because I cared that much. And what a cool amenity or resource that is available to folks who are willing to do this. Not only are we putting in the work, each minute of work counts for more than your minute of work. And these two amenities build to the third amenity, which is that folks who are willing to go on these going right pursuits not only are uh, committed in ways that cannot be replicated otherwise, and not only do they have a large body of deep work behind them, but they are characteristically more resilient to adversity than people who are not. Meaning, uh, in my case, there's nothing you can do or say to me or no sort of like financial hardship or um, injury or sort of external stimulus that could dissuade me from my mission. And the more committed and the more deep work you have behind you, the more resilient you are to that adversity. And this is extremely important because the universal truth with all human beings is that we have adversity coming our way. That's part of living in uncertainty. And uh, then what is more valuable than being more fit for those challenges when they come? Because you're in an environment that makes you more resilient to them. Uh, and these amenities lead us to the fourth, which is what we've talked about earlier, flow, the peak human uh, experience. Um, you know, not only is this the source of our best work under the greatest challenge, what a cool coincidence that chemically in the brain, this experience leads us to unparalleled feelings of joy and fulfillment. This is why I made that case earlier that maybe pursuing flow uh, is at the heart of the meaning of life. Um, most workers, more than 70% of U.S. workers are not fulfilled at work. Imagine if you could pursue something that not only brought more value to you and your community, but also uh, left you feeling more fulfilled. It seems like the ultimate win-win-win-win scenario. Right. Imagine living in a community where all people were pursuing flow. It's such a beautiful, rigorous environment with insane utility. And the last element is kind of the, the kicker. This is where we all started because when I was transitioning out of baseball, I knew that I was more fit to do the next thing because of this last amenity, which is that folks who are going right develop highly transferable skills, which solves for one of the biggest worries that people have, which is, yeah, but what if I try my best and really go for it doing this thing and I don't make it? You know, I didn't make it. I, I specifically didn't make it. I spent almost 20 years working on a project that didn't pan out. And I'm telling you that I am so lucky that I went on those 20 years and they're not 20 years wasted. In fact, I am, you know, not only on this podcast, but not only have a whatever best-selling book or like some successful businesses or whatever people get excited about, uh, all of that is specifically possible at the level that I do those things because of that pursuit. And who is it that you would rather hire, um, date, be friends with? go down a dark alley with than the types of people who engage in these types of pursuits, 
which is extremely clear in my mind when you look at it that way, when it feels like you have two bad choices. Most people feel like they have choice number one, which is pursue my peak self and do something that probably isn't going to work out. It's extremely risky. It's not really socially supported, probably going to fail, and it's only for insane people. The other option is I do the thing that I definitely don't want to do. I never meet my best self. I avoid all risk and uncertainty in my mind, and I seek safety at every turn. Those seem like two bad choices, but when you look at it through the perspective of what I just described the book as, it seems to me that there is no choice. I mean, there's only one choice. There's uncertainty in both choices. Only one of them has upside. And that is you going down the path of finding out your best self. And uh, that's, that's the book. That's, that's, why, that's why I wrote it. And I think if you read it, which is short, you know, easy read, if you read it, you could still quit and you could still just mail in your life. But you, just, you couldn't tell me that you're being more reasonable for having done so anymore. And that was my ultimate goal. Yeah. Well, we were talking before about um, a, a comment you made on one of the other podcasts, and you mentioned about um, professions that set the bar high, you know, at the front door, have this this hard testing procedure, but then it drops off on the other side. And that resonated with me. People listening, we got we obviously got a, a smorgasbord of, of passions and skills and desires out there. There are people, um, you know, and I would like to put myself in this category that trained their ass off to become a firefighter trained their ass off through the entire probation or my, my in my uh, particular case multiple probations um and took the job seriously and kept that that motivation you know but what i see and i and I, i'm very fair with this podcast because i highlight many of the the uh, elements of the job that in in itself breaks people down seat deprivation you know um understaffing so these poor men and women are, are not even allowed to go home they have to work extra shifts but you do see that happen a lot in some, especially some departments with poor leadership, where these people showed up at the front door ready to kick ass. But then once they got through that probation, that one year mark, there is, you know, there's definitely a certain amount that then it drops off. So what, what do you think is the reason for that? Because you talked about it in that, that one podcast from your sports person, um, you know, coach perspective what what do you see the reason of someone that has to meet that bar but then after that stop yeah this this is sort of at the heart of of um development and the the way that that conversation comes up for me is the the collective version of what i just described like the 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 concept of going right in a group like a company or a team or or a sports team or something like that um is largely around kind of developmental high performance culture. You know, that's what your your team is after. That's what my sort of staff is after. That that's really what we're trying to do. And one of the helpful ways to build high performance culture is with a, a rite of passage. Uh, we know that the the, the work that is uh, required of high performance teams requires two main elements uh, that need to be present at sort of asymmetrical levels: trust and willingness. And that's part of the reason for rites of passage. It's a wonderful sort of builder or 
or test for both trust and willingness. And so to be a firefighter, as, as you well know, you have to go through a pretty strenuous, rigorous rite of passage. It essentially means that the line out the door is much longer than the people who get to be on the team. And the sort of rite of passage, which continues through probation, makes things a little bit harder, a little bit longer, a little bit more annoying. There's more attrition. There's this physical and mental hardship that provides a barrier to the benefit of being on the team. Now, what I propose in the other podcasts and what I talk about in the Hold the Standards Summit seminar that I teach is, is that when building high performance cultures, there is a requisite commitment to rigorous continuing development, meaning yes, build the gnarly aggressive rite of passage to filter for and develop trust and willingness in the system. But that's what gets you in the door. What keeps you in the door is an endless uh, development at your edge of your capacity. And that is the sort of the leveling relative burden that is glue that holds the team together, keeps the team honest, keeps the team uh, in this sort of pursuit of, of excellence. Without the continuing development, you take a great thing like a rite of passage and you make it potentially dangerous because the rite of passage becomes a reason for um, uh, seizing your development. And it's kind of the simply said, it's where you see like the good old boys club show up, right? And that's because you went through a rite of passage, you don't have to develop yourself continually. And then you, your performance subsides, your uh, development uh, shrinks. And we see this across industries. You know, the, the literature will say that the 25th year surgeon is not better than the 50 year surgeon. And there are many industries where this is the same because we know that skill development subsides. You know, I teach about the principles of deliberate practice in the, in my seminars. And, you know, two easy examples are your driving ability. You know, everybody put in another, you know, 2000 hours of practice driving this year, but did you get any better? And most of us got worse. You know, I, I usually trick people into, um, scribbling something in their notes and then I just embarrass them in front of the, the group. Um, and I say, uh, you know, excuse me, sir, if you could come up here with your notebook, I'd like to show the, the group something. And then they come on up and I say, how long have you been writing English? And <laughs> they say, Oh, four years. And I go, Jesus Christ, everybody give a round of applause. We have a handwriting expert here, 40 years in the craft. And then I show them their notebook and it looks God awful. Right? And it's like, we're doing the work, but we're not getting better. And in many examples, including your driving and your handwriting, it, do, it doesn't pay to continually improve, improve because we, we're, we're good enough at it. But when it comes to fighting fires and saving lives and uh, shooting down range and all these other things that there are heavy consequences for not being uh, excellent at, uh, we see this decline in skill development. And so when an organization is not committed to continuing development, the rite of passage becomes a little bit uh, toxic, right? Uh, and the group resists uh, new folks from coming in and even continuing development inside the system. 
uh, and they cite the original rite of passage as the reason for doing so. And uh, sure, you might get some things from that. You might get a relinquishment of responsibility or a little bit of what feels like uh, safety inside of your your role, but um, we have to remember the system itself, the company or the department or the team, the, the system itself is after results, right? And so we, we sort of maybe get lost in that a bit when we start to think that the system cares that you went through probation. The system doesn't give a shit about probation. The system cares about saving lives and fighting fires. And so uh, when the how the system is built doesn't support that, then you get these weird environments where the system isn't building the, the best possible outcomes. And uh, I like to create environments that don't tolerate that. You know, so sport is a good one. I mean, no one's lives are in danger in sport, but there's just so many like millions of dollars in it that – the sport doesn't care if you've been doing it for 15 years. If you can't win, you're fucking out, right? And so the military, uh, I'm sure, has its own struggles. But just as a, a civilian who doesn't know anything about anything, uh, I look at that as uh, an environment that is uh, quite rigorous, right? If you can't do the job and that fact puts other lives in danger, you're out, you know? And so the best teams in the world – build build in uh, an accounting for that and knows that, hey, left to our own devices, our skills are going to de decline over time. We need to double down on development and uh, make this a, an endless commitment. You know, that the, the utility is held to the highest standard here beyond our feelings or tenure or, um, you know, the good old boys club of it all. Yeah. And I don't know if you realize just quite how pertinent what you said was, but I mean, that is absolutely spot on. And, and one of the things that people say sometimes that I cringe at is, well, I was at my fittest when I left the academy. It's like, well, that was 20 years ago. The fuck are you right. talking about? And you, you know, that's 20 years further forward in all the coaching athletics that we understand now. I can tell you right now at 45, I'm way fitter than I was when I became a fireman at 27, I think it was. And I bloody well should be, you know, now I do, you know, strong fit philosophy and, and all this, these other things that have made me more capable as a tactical athlete. But don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I'm by any means owning many of the skills that I need to own as well. But I think what is even more kind of uh, should be a huge red flag for us is we're not even talking about being able to catch and pitch. The firefighter paramedics in the American fire service specifically, and, and obviously this pertains to everyone else on the planet as well, but we are the EMS side and the fire side, and that is such a diverse set of skills that how the fuck can you not do something every single day to get a little bit better? We will never be the masters of anything unless we disregard the rest of our skills and just want to be the best you know, forcible entry guru or whatever it is, but we we have so many skills to juggle, which is what most of us love about the job. But yeah. there is no room for complacency. We, you know, the the bar is already set high from what you're expected to do, and when that's resisted through administration, through you know unions, through you know whatever it is, the the health and safety department of the council, or, you know whatever you, whatever's pushing against you, 
that is you know our biggest challenge and we need to rise above that and just like you said have ownership the navy seals doing you know testing all the time and they could be a 15 year seal if you didn't meet the bar sorry you're out you know yeah. and that's how our profession should be as well yeah and i and i recognize that you know as a civilian uh in, in, an ignorant person to the details of, of that I, I can't claim to know what it's like to to be an individual in one of these industries uh, I, I think there are plenty of reasons there are plenty of call it good reasons to to not develop you know there's, there's a there's an incredible quote that sort of uh, highlights the the start of the book it's not my quote but but I'll read it and I think it really hits home uh, it goes like this you see in this world there is one awful thing and that that is that everyone has his reasons you know and it's like just because we have reasons doesn't mean uh, we are free and clear of the responsibility of the day and uh, and you know if it if it helps I, I, I like to use in my sort of consulting and in my own companies these perceptual positions and uh, they're really helpful in terms of uh, gaining more truth you know any system or team that is interested in the best performances needs the best information and we find that the highest performing teams uh, simply share the truth better and this usually means the uh, inclusion of negative feedback uh, low performing teams don't share that information they don't feel uh, comfortable sharing it or, or um, there's resistance in that way and and in in an effort to to see more perspectives than through our own two eyes we use this kind of like perceptual position model as a way to do so and it's really relevant for this conversation um, by the time we get to the fourth position you'll know what i mean the first perceptual position is your view meaning like life or this scenario through your two eyes so if there's some sort of conflict between two people First perceptual position is self. That is how you're experiencing it based on who you are as a person and your view. The second perceptual position is other. That's the person that you're uh, conversing with or having conflict with. Your ability to put yourself in their shoes and grow up where they grew up and think what they think and prefer what they prefer uh, is the second perceptual position. The third perceptual position is that of the observer. So it's like if you could watch our conflict on a you know on a movie screen uh emotionless and a, a view it as an observer that's the third perceptual position that's really helpful for uh, removing your emotional sort of side to the story there and the fourth perceptual position is that of the group so it's almost as if the team or the organization had a mind of its own and it had its own needs and and wants and and feelings and uh, personality and if you can put your you know take your mind outside of your head and put it into the group's mind that would be the fourth perceptual position the fifth is is source or, or god or whatever it is that you believe in but to go back to the fourth you know i think the best way to to round uh this conversation of continuing development up is regardless of someone's reasons for not 
driving their own development or meeting the standard after their probation period. The way that I connect best with people on this is this team, this company, this brand, whatever the case may be, deserves the best, don't you think? And in a, in a fire department, I think anyone would agree with that. Remove yourself from, from your shoes, my shoes, whatever. When we put our, our mind in the perspective of this department, wouldn't you agree that this department deserves the best people providing the best effort, correct or incorrect? Everyone would agree with that. And when you look at this problem from that perspective, it, it, it breaks down the guard and the ego of, I've been doing this for fucking 25 years, man, right? And you kind of, you see it from the perspective of the department and its needs and its values. And I think that helps us get over our, our bullshit and our quote unquote reasons. And especially on topics like this, uh, it's a nice dose of sort of humility, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to I want to transition to some closing questions, but one more thing for people listening. Firstly, obviously, we need them to buy the book and read it. But if you could tell them one thing that would try and give them the confidence to make today the first day of whatever they're going to change in their life, you know, what what would be some of the the tools or or self talk that you would give them to to overcome that that fear and start making that first bold step. I think there's a universal truth and maybe the people that are listening can sort of think this with me out loud right now. I haven't met anyone who feels that they are already at the capacity that they would like to be. Whether you're a parent, a uh, firefighter, you're a, you know, a entrepreneur, whatever it is that you do, I think everyone has a strong need to be of a greater capacity. Basically, the things that you want to do or accomplish uh, need a bigger container to fit in there. You need more skills, you need more perspective, you need more ability. And I, I haven't met anyone that, that disagrees. And if you're like me, and that's true for you, then I think we need to ask the question, well, how do I get a bigger container? And I'll tell you how you don't get a bigger container. How you don't get a bigger container is by receiving information that you already believe to be true. If I could somehow like download and print out everything about you, everything that you know to be true, everything that's inside of you on a piece of paper, and I started to read that back to you, the best case scenario of me reading this back to you is that you would be the exact same person at the end, correct? Right. So then the, the mechanism of how you and I and anyone who's listening to this grows into that bigger container is by finding disconfirming information. Essentially information that forces us to see and know what we can't unsee and unknow. And so this means, unfortunately, or fortunately, is that we need to put ourselves in environments and around people and uh, in front of information that will challenge and therefore grow who we are as people. And the good news is we can cultivate that. 
We don't need to be around people that will tell us what we want to hear. We can cultivate relationships that speak the truth, that challenge us. We can seek out experiences and challenges that reflect back to us this type of growth information. And it takes intention and effort to do this on purpose, but it's possible. But I think when you know that mechanism at its heart, then you start to realize, man, if I do nothing different right now, there is no chance that I will be better or changed because of it. And this is what I was talking about earlier with this sort of development after adolescence is we need to seek out these environments because the only other way that it happens is when life does it on its own. And that looks like financial crisis, cancer, death, hardship, tragedy. And that's not how I want to develop. Sure, I'll develop when those things come, but I want to have a say in this thing. And so right now, we all can choose to seek out disconfirming information to grow. And the simplest way to put that is in a question. Ask yourself as often as you can, how might I be wrong about this? And it's through that question you can grow into something that you can never imagine. I love that. Absolutely love that. I mean, it kind of resonates with that whole, you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room philosophy because, yeah, I mean, mentally, physically, emotionally, um, yeah, I mean, just like with with what we went to talk to about before, you know, in the gym saying, you're not going to get a muscle to grow or get stronger unless you stress it. So why is there any difference with the uh, the human experience itself? Right. Absolutely. Beautiful. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions because I know we're already an hour and a half into it and I'm going to let you go. Um, we talked about uh, going right and I want to make sure that everyone knows where they can find that in a moment. But are there any other books that you love to recommend that could be about what we've discussed today or something completely different? Uh, anyone who's listened to me talk already knows what I'm going to say, but it's, it's worth saying, you know, there's one book that every person who would like to um, have a leadership position in my company must read. And it has nothing to do with training or fitness or, or even business. And it's Carol Dweck's work called Mindset. And, uh, you know, it's a multi-time bestseller and, and, um, you know, I've, purchased and gifted over a hundred copies myself. Uh, many people have probably heard of it, but I can't underscore enough how critically important it is because on a baseline foundational level, it offers a perspective of the world that will give you a chance to grow. And many people have strong sort of um, perspectives that will prevent their ability to grow and it has to do with how you re receive information in the world and uh, it's through the the growth mindset that we have a chance to um, make use of the feedback in our lives even seek it out and then there's the fixed mindset who um, will bob and weave and dodge all uh, information that can contribute to our growth. And so if you don't have a, a growth mindset, it's going to be just nearly impossible for us to work together on this team because of what we're trying to accomplish. And so I can't think of a book that's more critically important uh, than that one. 
Brilliant. Oh, yeah, I've heard that mentioned a few times. I gotta, I gotta get myself a copy of that. Does she, does she write grit as well, or was that a different author? No, that's Duckworth. But that's they, right. uh, I think Duckworth makes reference to to Dweck. They're they're definitely in the same um, arena. Gotcha. All right. Well, then the same question: uh, a movie that you love? Oh man, I'm a bad movie guy, but um, I love. This is a random one: uh, Ascent of a Woman. It's probably the only movie that I that's not a comedy that I go back and watch over and over again. And uh, if you've never seen The Scent of a Woman, basically, um, well, you should watch it. But you can uh, fast forward to the very end, and there's a monologue from uh, De Niro that is probably ten minutes long. That is incredible, and it's about uh, integrity and doing what's right in the face of a million reasons not to. Beautiful. Was he blind in that? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah I think I did see that. Great film. All right, so then the same theme, but a, a documentary. Any documentaries that you love? Oh, man. I love watching documentaries, but they've all been pretty like trashy and like true crime-based lately. I'm trying to think. Um, oh, man. Did you see uh, Don't Fuck With Cats on Netflix yet? Oh, my gosh. I just earlier today watched the second of three so, <laughs> um interested to find out how it ends but yeah it's insane yes i guess here's what i'll say rather than give an answer because we can rope all those into like the same category uh i have an observation uh, about all these crazy true crime kind of trashy documentary things murder mystery things all right so here's the observation it doesn't pay to be bored and dumb. And most of all these people who find themselves in great deal of trouble are bored and dumb. And they're usually around other bored and dumb people. So get busy uh, getting after it because uh, th there's a central theme in all of these things. And there are people who have too much time on their hands and not enough critical thinking. Brilliant. I've never had an observation instead of a documentary. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Oh, Dr. Kara Miller, for sure. My friend and coach and former professor. She wrote the foreword of my book. Uh, she uh, coaches massively successful teams and is um, a developmental psychologist, uh, Harvard-trained, uh, unbelievable. Brilliant. Thank you. Actually, Tate was another one I wanted to reach out with. He's a mutual friend of one of my guys, uh, Jesse, who does the foundation training, coaching. And then when I, when I used to do stunts, one of my stunt friends was in uh, Jumanji. When he and another guy got beat up by the girl, he was the other guy. So. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Yeah, Tate's, Tate's uh, an amazing soul. He uh, He's the kind of person who I, I look at him and I just know for a fact that he's lived like a hundred lives before this one. Yeah, he has a podcast too. Is it Pirate Life? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And he's also the, the, the feature of uh, – he's the feature uh, character in the commitment chapter of Going Right as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress when you're not coaching and writing? 
Oh, that's really critical, important time for me. I'm, I'm highly introverted, so uh, I, I cherish time alone. I'm a coffee snob and fanatic, and so um, I either go to a, a coffee shop and have that experience, or I recently purchased the ridiculously snobby uh, espresso machine for my house, so I, so I uh, put great care into the process of coffee. Is that how you came across the world champion barista? That's exactly right. That book was written in his shop. Oh, was it? Yeah. Excellent. All right. So then the very last thing before I let you go, um, if people want to buy the book or if they want to reach out to you, how can they find you online? Yeah, you can grab the the book at Amazon. It's called Going Right, like the direction. Um, And... Yeah, all my sort of like online uh, education and seminar stuff is at holdthestandard.com. The gym website is deucegym.com. And you can find me at Functional Coach on Instagram and Twitter. Brilliant. All right. Well, Logan, I want to say thank you so much. I I know, like you said, you weren't that familiar with the tactical space but that's the whole point of this podcast and just kind of like the philosophy you're talking about is trying to get outside that comfort zone and 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 kind of enter into other people's worlds and see where those lines intersect and there's there's been multiple times where they have so thank you so much for you know, letting me pick your brains in this interview thank you i'm i'm humbled to to be tangent to to your community and uh Again, as a civilian who's always been a civilian, I'm sort of humbled to those who who show up every day for for their role in, in that world. 